It's an honor to be with you here this morning. Redeemer Church of Dubai sends their greetings to you. Uh, We've been praying for you. We pray for you often in our worship services uh, on Friday morning, and it's a privilege to be here uh, because we pray for you, uh, care a lot about you, and we uh, admire your pastor. I I admire Matthew. I'm thankful for his friendship uh, in my life. Uh, He's been an encouragement to me over the past year or so since Matthew and Bonnie and their kids moved here. And I'm encouraged most of all uh, by how much he loves Jesus and how much he loves you. And whenever I'm around Matthew and spend time together, he just talks so much about how much he loves you, how much he cares about you, how much he adores this church. And so I know you have a, a man of God uh, as your pastor who pr- is, considers it a privilege uh, to be a, an under-shepherd of the chief shepherd here uh, in Abu Dhabi. So I think you are blessed uh, to have him as your pastor. And I look forward to serving alongside you, Matthew, for the years to come, as long as the Lord has us here uh, so it is an honor to be here. Matthew, thanks for the invitation. It's no small honor to, to have your pulpit given up and to give it to me this morning. So thanks for entrusting it to me uh, today. Well, at Redeemer, we do have the privilege, as Matthew already said, to meet in a hotel ballroom. So we do have these big chandeliers. Um, we praise the Lord and worship the risen Christ in Dira every Friday. Um, and so many visitors and many newer believers Uh, in our church gathering, have never actually been in a church building. Never actually been in a church building. This may be the case for you as well. You may not meet in a hotel bar. You meet at a zoo, which is actually quite exciting to me. Our kids already went to the petting zoo and looked at the animals this morning, which means it'll be quite difficult to get them to come to our church gathering next week. They'll be asking for the zoo church and wanting to come. So if you see us here again one Friday, please welcome us. We'll be glad to visit again anytime. Well, I come from a country where churches don't often meet at zoos, don't often meet in hotels, but perhaps meet uh, maybe in a school or a house or a meeting hall or more likely than not an actual church building. And so I'm reminded of how unique this is when we go to the U.S. and our kids do ask for the little cookies we have in the back and the bottles of water and the food court where we go afterwards. But one of the particular things about my home country that you notice about church buildings is lots of them have a little church marquee out front or a church sign. Maybe you have those in your home countries, but a big church sign out front. And on this sign, oftentimes you'll have the church name, maybe the name of the pastor, and more often than not, a church slogan of some kind or a saying or a piece of advice. Maybe you've seen these. And I recently ran across a list where one of my old mentors shared the church signs that he saw on a road trip around the country. And some of these signs had some interesting things. We have no way but God's way. Power on with Jesus. Come in and have your faith lifted. Those are good, but I in particular like this one. This is a C-H blank blank C-H. What's missing? You are. Now, if you didn't get that one, just think about it. It'll come to you. It'll come to you later on today. Some church signs announce things happening in the church. Homemade ice cream social. Organist position. Open. And maybe the best one, the party is here, the pastor is back. Not exactly sure what that means, Matthew. I have no idea, but it sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty good. How about these? When you pray for rain, carry your umbrella. That's good advice, I suppose. 
Your mouth plus God's word equals victory. Now, there are also some signs that play on words to get your attention. If your faith isn't contagious, it might be contaminated. Okay? How about this one? Inspire to inspire before you expire. Now consider that one this afternoon as you're back home. The wages of sin is death. Repent before payday. Dark. Soul food served here. It's a little bit warmer. Just some deep thoughts for you to meditate on while you're eating your lunch today. Now sometimes these messages on these church signs may be edifying or scriptural and they may give grace to those who read them. But all too often, the message communicates a mere list of religious do's and don'ts. They often reflect a shallow understanding of the message that the church is to be entrusted with. Matthew said, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so today, I want to consider something considerably more comprehensive and profound than a cliche on a church sign. And I pray that this would radically transform our lives today and bring us hope. And so I want to do that by looking at the book of Ruth. So if you have your Bible with you today, if you could turn with me to the book of Ruth. It's the eighth book of the Bible, the eighth book of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then you'll find this little jewel of a book, this little gem in our Bibles called the book of Ruth. It's one of the historical books of the Old Testament. It's a story taken right out of history, a beautiful little story. And we'll see in the book of Ruth that it's God who is at the center of the action, that he is the major actor of the book. He's not a life coach in the sky centered on us, that he is the sovereign God of the universe who created everything and governs everything to the praise of his name. And it's a wonderful little story because it's about an ordinary family. These are not a people of great importance. They're from the little town of Bethlehem. Now, nothing supernatural happens in the book. There's no dreams, no visions. No miracles, there are no apostles, no superheroes to speak of. It's a story of how God provides for a family. It's a story about the kindness and the mercy and the providence of God. And here's the one point that I want to get across today. If you're taking notes, here's the one point of the sermon, the one overarching point of which everything else I'm going to say today hangs on. And it's more of an exhortation. It's not a list or a statement of a do or don't. No, it's a call to hope in God. And here's the point. Hope in God who works all things together according to his surprising providence for our good, for his glory. Let me, let me repeat that. It's just the one point of the sermon today, one point of the text. It's what Ruth 1 is all about. It's to hope in God who works all things together according to his surprising providence for our good, for his glory. Let me set the setting 
for the story of Ruth by reading to you the first five verses in chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Epaphrodites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, verse 1 that I just read tells us that this is during the time of the judges. Now, that right there should send chill bumps down our spine as we read it. This is a dark time. To see just how dark it is, if you have your Bibles, just flip one page over. Just look back at the last chapter of the book of Judges there in chapter 21, verse 25. Let's go back a page. And it says there, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, when sinful people reject God as king and set themselves up as gods, there are devastating results. The last story we read in Judges is about how a woman was brutally raped and murdered. She was slaughtered. Now, that last line in the book of Judges would be a great opening line of a horror movie. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it was in this time, as everyone was doing whatever they wanted, that a famine came upon the land of Israel. Now, the cause of this famine is not indicated, but from a theological perspective, it seems quite plausible to think that this famine is the judgment of God. According to Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy chapter 28, if Yahweh's people, if God's people go after other gods, he says he's going to respond by cutting off the rains and sending famine. This seems to be happening here in the book of Ruth because just 70 kilometers away in the land of Moab, the rains came. It was fruitful vegetation, that people had food in abundance. But instead of following God, the Israelites, they remained unrepentant and steeped in their sin. And it's out of here that a man named Elimelech takes his family out of the promised land into Moab to find food. Think about for a second, what town were they living in? Well, Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread. Now, there are many ironies in this book. You'll see this morning, just in this one chapter, it's just layered with irony after irony. And the first is that in the house of bread, the people are starving to death. In Elimelech, he had a decision to make. He was leading his family. Do I remain with my family in Bethlehem in the promised land where I'm supposed to be, the land that God has given to us, the land that God has commanded for us to remain, or... Do I relocate, do I pack up our things, get my family, and go to the land of Moab? He takes a look at the situation, debates, pros and cons. 
looks at the economics, and he decides to go to Moab. Now, at first, it might not seem like such a bad decision. Is he just taking up the expatriate life, just, just like many of us? Is he moving to the Philippines or Canada or Kenya or to Abu Dhabi? No, not really. This situation is quite different. The Moabites are a wicked people. They were descendants of Lot there in Genesis. The Israelites were commanded by God not to leave the promised land at this point, and they were commanded not to go live among the Moabites. But Elimelech, instead, he makes this tragic decision. He disobeys God, and he exchanges the spiritual vitality and obedience to God for food. See, God had designed this famine to move his people to repentance and renewed faith in him. But instead, Elimelech just walks away. He packs up his family, and they walk away from the people of God to go to the land of Moab. And the irony just continues. Verse 2, where we see the name Elimelech. Elimelech actually means, my God is king. But surely Elimelech is his own king as he does what is right in his own eyes. His two sons are named Malon and Kilion, which means sick and dying. Not the greatest names, are they? I'm sure there's not many kids in your children's ministry right now with the names Malon and Kilion. It's for good reason. It would be like me coming up here today and introducing you to my two sons. On this one side, we have Asian bird flu pandemic. On the other side, I'd like to introduce you to bacterial meningitis. Now, these two kids really are good kids, I promise, when you get to know them. We just gave them bad names. You can see just the irony just dripping here in these pages because in verse 3, Elimelech, he dies. Why did Elimelech move to Moab? So that he wouldn't die. What happens in Moab? He dies. He went to find comfort and all he could find was a grave. Now, we don't know how he died, why he died, but he did. Was it judgment? We don't know, but what we do know is that Elimelech should have lived by faith. Oh, friends, our decisions, they have consequences. When we compromise and reject God's clear commands, it won't be without repercussions. Well, fathers, in particularly, as you lead your families, you will be tempted, like Elimelech, to sacrifice the spiritual vitality of your family for material prosperity. Maybe some other things. You'll be tempted to justify your decision in disobeying God with the lie that you're providing better for your family than what God is providing. Well, fathers, husbands, lead your family toward Christ. Exalt Jesus as the supreme treasure in your lives. Stay connected to community with the church body. Plug into the church. Join the church as a church Member, be involved, get to know others. Don't believe the slide that what's good for your bank account or what's good for your CV or what's good for your reputation among men is going to be what's best for your family. Now look at verse 4 there. Not only does Elimelech move his family there and he dies, but later his sons, they take Moabite wives. These Moabites were worshipers of Baal. They were idol worshipers. God had commanded his people not to marry Moabites, not to marry idol worshipers. But this is how sin works. Sin begets sin, which begets more and more sin. 
This was the anthem for Elimelech's family. As they make one bad choice after another. Oh, brothers and sisters, as you look at this passage, it's easy for us to want to cast judgment on Elimelech, but we need to see just how closely we're related to him this morning. Now, we too are prone to justifying our sin and doing what is right in our, our, our own eyes. Now, we're prone to saying things like, well, everyone in my office is doing blank, and so it's just kind of what we do around here. Or, well, don't we all here in the UAE, don't we all spend money on this or that? This is just the lifestyle that we're to have here. Or how about this? I know it's not right. I know it's unethical. But to get ahead here, to make it here in the UAE, we've got to do this. It's the only way to survive. Or maybe we say this oftentimes, this is not really my home. My home country's back there. I'm going to go back. This is kind of a spiritual parenthesis in my life. And so when I get back home, then I'm going to get plugged back into my home church. Then I'm going to begin walking with God again. Then I'm going to join my church uh, there. Then I'm going to serve in ministry. Then I'll get involved in a home group. Then I'll disciple my kids in the faith family. Then I'll be involved. Then I'll grow again. This is just kind of a break in my life. But friends, I want to urge you that your environment is not an excuse for sin or for complacency. Just because Malon and Kilion were surrounded by Moabite women with no other prospect to marry, didn't give them the right to do what God had prohibited. Well, friends, as we look at the story, it doesn't get any better for these men. We see after 10 years of childlessness, the boys sick and dying, they really do die. And at the worst point of history, the worst thing happened to Naomi. I mean, put, your shoes, put yourself in her shoes just for a minute. She's buried her husband, and now she's buried her only two sons, her two children. And that sounds bad to us today. It sounds like a nightmare to us today. But it was even worse for her back then. Because she was a widow, but she was a widow in the worst way. She's an older woman, which means she has no parents to return to. She's too old to remarry and find provision with another husband and family. She has no adult children. Both her boys have passed away. No one can support her, and she lives as a foreigner in an alien land. I mean, her situation couldn't be any more desperate, and we're only at verse 5 of chapter 1. This would be quite a dark story if it ended here. But the story turns. Look at verses 6 through 13. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? If I get sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. I should say I have hope, even... 
if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So here we have Naomi. The story continues. And along with Ruth and Orpah, they start on the trip back to Bethlehem. They've heard that the shelves of the house of bread have been restocked. There's food again. But along the way, Naomi tells her daughters-in-law, ladies, go home. Go back to Moab. I've got no money. I've got no land. I have no future. I mean, literally, she says, do I have any more sons in my guts that they could become your husbands? She doesn't even use the normal word for womb there. It's a curt response. Her point is, ladies, I've got nothing for you. Just go. I appreciate your willingness to go, but it's not a good idea. I've got nothing. I don't want you to end up like me, old, alone, bitter. Go home, back to your mother and father. Meet another husband. Get married. Have children. Start over. So in verse 14, Orpah, a bit reluctantly, but she goes back to Moab. But Ruth stays and clings to her. Ruth is simply amazing, isn't she? If you think about it, that the book is named after Ruth is truly remarkable for several reasons. First, Ruth was not an Israelite. She was a Moabite, a fact that we're reminded time and time again in our passage. It's the only book in the Old Testament named after a non-Israelite. Secondly, Ruth isn't even the main character of the book. Naomi is. And the story opens with crisis in Naomi's family. It highlights Naomi's emptiness and concludes in chapter 4 with resolution in Naomi's life. The attention is actually not on Ruth for the majority of the book. Ruth speaks least often of the three main characters. Now, based on the plot and based on the character development of the story, it should be called the book of Naomi. And so the fact that it's actually named after Ruth is remarkable. It means that the narrator is fascinated with Ruth and has a special admiration for her. It's because Ruth displays a loyal love called chesed. Now, chesed is one of those Hebrew words that's difficult to translate. You can't just translate it into one solitary English word. It's more of a relational term that wraps itself around an entire cluster of concepts. It communicates attributes like love and mercy and grace and kindness and goodness and benevolence, loyalty, covenant faithfulness. It encompasses all of those at one time. It's a love that is sacrificial. It's a love that is moved to act for the benefit of others. It's a selfless love. Because it's one thing just to tell someone that you love them with your lips over and over again. But to show someone chesed was a totally different thing. And this is what Ruth was doing with Naomi when she clung to her and went to Bethlehem. See, every immigration act is drastic, leaving the familiar and plunging into the unknown. We all did this for the most part when we came to the UAE. We packed up our things and took a hope-filled risk with the thought that what we were doing was going to better our lives in some way. Yet here we read of a woman who is willing to leave everything familiar 
and plunge into what she knows will be a worse life for the blessing of another. It's chesed. It's a loyal love. But we see Naomi is just dismayed with this decision, tries to convince her to go back there. Verse 15, she says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And then we see Ruth show this loyal covenant love when she recites these famous words. She says these words that many of us have heard uttered at weddings. Perhaps some of you said these words at your wedding. Verse 16, Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Now the more I ponder Ruth's words, the more awestruck I am by this love. Ruth's commitment to her destitute mother-in-law is simply astonishing. First, it means leaving her own family and land. Second, it means, as far as she knows, a life of widowhood and childlessness. Because Naomi has no man to give. If she married a non-relative, her commitment to Naomi would be lost. She'd have new commitments. Third, it means going to an unknown land with new people, new customs, new language. And fourth, it means a commitment even more radical than marriage. Did you see that there in the text? She says, where you die, I will die, and there be buried. In other words, she'll never return home even after Naomi dies. She's going to remain there, even be buried there. But the most amazing commitment in all this is that your God will be my God. Now, Naomi had just said in verse 13 that the hand of the Lord has gone upon me. In Naomi's view, her experience of this God of Israel was bitterness. She was bitter. She was angry with this God. But in spite of this, Ruth forsakes her spiritual heritage, forsakes her religious background, and makes the God of Israel her God. Ruth, at some point, whether now or years previous, we don't know, but she has come to trust in Naomi's God in spite of of Naomi's bitter testimony against him. And she's committed to show this chesed, this loyal love to her mother-in-law. Simply incredible that Ruth would forsake everything to support, to be a blessing to this woman. That she would forsake her idols to follow the living God and place all her hope in him. That's the main point of the passage. So we're all called to do the same, to Hope in God who works all things together according to his surprising providence for our good and for his glory. You know, it's interesting as you read the passage, Naomi is a firm believer in this providence of God, isn't she? She believes in God's sovereignty. She just just doesn't like how God is treating her. But she has no doubt that God did it. Naomi's clear. The cause of her troubles is God. God is sovereign and she's resolutely bitter. But friend, if you think God is sovereign, which he is, but if you think he is sovereign but not good, what you create is a cruel God who mercilessly inflicts pain, entices you to sin, and haphazardly wields his power over life and death. 
But if you think God is good and not sovereign, you create a God who took a great risk when he created the world. It's a God who isn't in control. It's a God who doesn't know the future. It's a God who just kind of winded up the world, left it, and he doesn't know what will happen. He hopes it will turn out okay. Now, as difficult as it is for us humans with limited understanding, finite understanding, when we come to God's word, the Bible, we are obligated to believe what God says about himself, that he is in control over all things and that he's also good. A merciful and compassionate God is the almighty God of the cosmos who reigns over all the affairs of men. He rules the nations. He rules families. God's sovereign rule extends from the desk of a king to your kitchen counter. He gives rain. He withholds rain. He gives life. He takes life. In him we live and move and have our being. From a little toothpick to the Taj Mahal, everything is only rightly understood in relation to God. He is the all-encompassing, all-pervading reality. Well, friends, Naomi was right. God is sovereign. We should join her in that conviction. The God, the Almighty, reigns in all things. But Naomi's theology was only half right. She knew he was sovereign, but she forgot or didn't know that he was also good. Naomi was blinded to his goodness. And even though Ruth had demonstrated this chesed love to her and has accompanied her back to Bethlehem at great cost to herself, Naomi doesn't see it. And so they get back to Bethlehem. And Naomi doesn't greet their, her friends saying, hey, nice to see you again. It's been a long time. Good to be in Bethlehem. Good to have food. Here is my wonderful daughter-in-law, Ruth. She's amazing. She's given up everything to cling to me, to follow me back, to support me, to take care of me. What a godsend. Now, she's blind. She instead complains. Look at verse 20. She tells these People back in Bethlehem, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Um, hello? I mean, just keep reading here. Even the narrator's forced to point out the obvious. Hello, Naomi. The narrator says, Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess. But Naomi's just blinded to who's right beside her. She says she's empty, and Ruth's going, hey, I'm, I'm here. Do you see me? I've given up everything for you. Now, Naomi's story here is actually pregnant with hope as her faithful daughter-in-law clings to her. Look at verse 22. Ruth clings to her, and then it says there, that they arrive in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, this was significant because in the barley harvest, the poor and the widows were provided with leftover gleanings to eat, to glean. They could go and pick up food. And what we see as we read through this chapter and as we read through the book of Ruth, we realize that as a believer, we must never lose hope. Even when God appears absent, God is doing 10,000 things in your life for your good and for his glory. Nothing in Ruth is miraculous. There's no dreams. There's no visions, no miracles. This is a book for those of us who see no dramatic answers to prayer. It's for those who see nothing but the mundane and even hard times. 
But friends, God is always at work in your life, behind the scenes in 10,000 ways for his glory, for your good. I mean, friends, even today, take time later on this afternoon to consider the present evidences of God's blessing in your life right now. What are the barley harvests in your life? Why do you assume that God is done with you or is absent? Why do you feel like you're Naomi, just empty? Because Naomi thinks she knows what God's agenda should be. She doesn't see what God's actually doing. Doesn't see who God's put there. Some of you might be in the same place this morning saying, I'm empty. I'm empty. I have an agenda for God, and he isn't falling in line with what I've expected or what I've wanted. Maybe as a church, it's meeting here. Maybe God hasn't given us the meeting place yet. Maybe God hasn't given you personally the job you've wanted. Maybe God hasn't done whatever you thought your plan for your life was when you arrived in the UAE. Maybe you've become a bit bitter But the story of Ruth is a colorful illustration of how trustworthy our God is and how sovereign he is. And see how he's working to provide for Naomi in ways that she didn't understand, that she didn't see. Oh, friends, God is in no less control over your life. God works in unexpected and surprising ways so that he gets all the glory. Trust in him. In fact, trusting God is your highest praise to God. Trusting God is your highest praise to God. Have you thought about it like that? You can say with your lips over and over again, I love you, God, I love you, God. You can pray to him over and over again. You can sing worship songs on Friday morning over and over again, Friday in and Friday out. But your highest praise to God is actually trusting him. We thought about that. Trusting God is your highest praise to God because when you do that, you say, God, I believe you. I believe you are sovereign. I believe you are good. So I'm going to rest in that. I'm going to cast my anxieties on you and I'm going to trust you. It's your highest praise to God. Oh, friend, believe in God. Believe that he is faithful to do what he has promised. I mean, just consider God's few, a few of God's promises to us in Scripture. If God is for us, who can be against us? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously give us all things? Oh, friends, I urge you, I encourage you, I implore you, hope in God who works all things together according to his surprising providence for our good. For his glory, God delights to act in surprising means so that it is perfectly clear that it is his work so that he gets all the glory. And we see in our story today that Elimelech failed to obey God whose wise and loving commands were for his good. And Naomi missed what God was doing all around her. But we're just like Elimelech. When it comes down to it, we're just like him. We do and we want to do what's right in our own eyes. And we're just like Naomi. We get bitter, upset, angry when God doesn't do what we think he should be doing. 
In fact, the Bible tells us it's far worse than that. It tells us that all of us have sinned and have abandoned God. Back from the first humans, we see in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve, up until today, that each of us are plagued with an evil heart that's prone to wander. And not just committing minor acts of malice, but complete rebellion. All of us go our own way, wanting to be God of our lives. And yet God, our creator God, is a holy God. He is a perfect God, and he is perfectly just. He is good, but he is just. And so he can't just snap his fingers and let sin go. He can't just forget what happened and turn the other way and go on as if our sin never happened. Instead, justice must be served. Sinning against a holy and perfect creator God means we deserve the ultimate judgment, death, suffering. But instead of killing us for eternity, instead of leaving us dead, instead of leaving us in that bad news, in his love, in his chesed, loyal love, he has offered offered forgiveness to us. He's offered forgiveness at the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, there on the cross 2,000 years ago. Jesus went to the cross, and on his body, our sins were placed as an atoning sacrifice. He took upon them, died a criminal's death. And in that moment, a believer's sin were placed on him. He took our sin and he gives us, he declares us righteous. And he rose from the dead two days later, proving he was indeed God. Friends, I urge you not to be like Elimelech, not to forsake God, or to be like Naomi, blinded to God's work. No, friend, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I urge you instead to turn to him today. My prayer this week, my prayer this morning and coming here to preach would be that many would turn in repentance and faith to Jesus to be saved. See, there's not an aisle to walk down. There's not a card that you sign to be saved. There's not a hand to be raised. There's not a good work to be done. In fact, the Bible says all our works are like filthy rags that can't save us. In fact, you could never do anything that would, in fact, save you. We could never be good enough. God's standard is perfection, and we have all failed. No, instead, friend, I encourage you to repent, to believe in Jesus as the only way to be saved, to accept forgiveness and salvation as an undeserved gift. I pray that today you would do that. And fellow Christian, I am thankful that you're here today. I pray that as you walk out these back doors, wherever you're headed, I pray that you would have hope. I pray that you would hope in the one in whom the story of Naomi and Ruth pointed to. So the Bible is a story about one who is clinging to you, Jesus. As a believer, Jesus is clinging to you. 2,000 years ago, he came, fully God, fully man. He would leave his home. He would be despised and rejected, living as an alien in a foreign land. And he would suffer and die, paying the penalty for your sin, all so that you could be united to him, all so that he could cling to you forever. Oh, friend, remember that because the father abandoned his son on the cross for your sin, God will never abandon you. No, God used Ruth to provide and bless Naomi. Be encouraged the hope that we have. We see at the end of the book, if you take some time this afternoon, and I hope you will, just to read the rest of Ruth. It won't take you long, but you'll see this great story of hope at the end God provides a spouse for Ruth rather unexpectedly, a man named Boaz. 
And we see that Naomi's family line that was cut off doesn't end. And not just that, but we see that Boaz is a great-grandfather to a man named David, which means that Ruth and Boaz are great-great-great-great-great-grandparents of, of Jesus. Now, God is indeed faithful, isn't he, to work out all things in this world, all things together for his glory. Oh, friends, hope in God. Hope in God who works all things together according to his surprising providence for your good and for his glory. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we come before you today as those who all too often forget your faithfulness. Father, we look at our present circumstances and we're anxious. We doubt. We fail to trust you. And yet we know that you are doing thousands of things in our lives each moment of every day. And yet we're consumed with our ever-changing circumstances that we fail to see the one great permanent circumstance of Christ and the gospel and how it remains true for us today. Oh, Father, forgive us. We pray that today you would melt our hearts to the truth that your grace for us abounds in loving kindness. Father, that you sent your one and only Son, Jesus, to save us. Oh, Father, would that truth remind us that you will hold nothing back from us, and yet you will give us all things. Father, would we trust you? Would we trust you with what would seem, from an outsider perspective, like a reckless abandon, all the while knowing that we are safe in your arms? Oh, Father, we praise you for Jesus today, and we pray all this. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.